Good morning, church. It's a great day. The sun's shining. We're here worshiping. We're going to hear God's word. And then we're going to fellowship over chili. What a better Sunday, right? I'm Jeff Collinger. I'm one of your elders, and it's my privilege to bring God's word this morning. Today, we're going to start a short mini-series on marriage, and it starts this morning with our sermon from Genesis, and it continues next Saturday night with the Us in Mind event with Ted Lowe, and then it concludes next Sunday morning with Pastor Chuck doing a sermon out of Ephesians 5. And let's pray as we begin. Father God, thank you for your word, and as we dive into your design for marriage, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, this morning, I want to start the series by taking a step back and looking in Genesis at God's design for marriage. And what better way to do that but going back to the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. And the, big, the theme or the big idea for this morning, which you'll see on the screen, is that God purposefully designed marriage as a lifetime, one flesh covenantal relationship between one man and one woman, which is complete in the husband-wife relationship and should be the priority relationship in the family. Now that's a mouthful, I'll say it again. God purposefully designed marriage as a lifetime, one flesh covenantal relationship between one man and one woman which is complete in the husband-wife relationship and should be the priority relationship in the family. Now, that's a lot. What I'm going to try to do is break this down in three principles and three applications this morning. But we're going to start by reading today's text, and we'll read it in a slightly unusual way where we insert part of chapter 2 into part of chapter 1, but what it does is show the chronologically what is actually happening in creation because chapter two is actually a little window into day six of creation. So I'm gonna read it in context. So let's join me in reading from God's word, starting in Genesis one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then we skip to Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
And then flipping back again to chapter one, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So let's dive into the first of our three principles. And that is that marriage between one man and one woman for life is a God-designed arrangement. Marriage between one woman and one man for life is a God-designed arrangement. Marriage is not, as our culture would tell us today, a mere contract of convenience or some man-made cultural construct that we're free to alter to our whim or to our desire. No. The specific design for marriage of one man and one woman and the actual performing of the first marriage ceremony in Genesis 1 and 2 is the specific, the intentional, and the purposeful design and doing of God as the final and crowning act of creation. And we see that at least in at least three different ways in this text. First, through God's creation of mankind in his image as distinctly male and female persons different from the rest of the created order. This is evident explicitly in Genesis 1.27, which will appear on the screen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This verse conveys an undeniable connection between the image of God and the ontological categories of male and female. And by ontological, what I mean is the concept of metaphysics, the nature of what it is to be something. And so what we're talking about is what is it that is in the nature of being human as God created us. And this verse consists of three lines of poetry with the second and the third line structured in parallel and communicating a correlation between God's image in the first line and male and female in the last line. You see, being created in the image of God and being male or female are essential to being human. Sex or gender, that is male and female, is not simply biological or genetic, just as being human is not simply biological or genetic. Sex or gender is first and foremost a spiritual and a metaphysical reality that God created. Being male or female cannot be changed by human hands, whether that's pronoun usage or the way we dress or even surgical or prescription drug-driven changes. Male and female is a key element of God's handiwork. It's his beautiful, his perfect, his original, and his everlasting design for what it means to be human. This idea is also evident in the flow of how that creation occurred in our Genesis 2 passage. And we're going to look at that now. Notice first that it's God and not man that declares that man's solitary condition is not good. Genesis 2.18. It's not good for the man to be alone. I, God, will make a helper suitable for him. And then God does something really cool. He parades the animals in front of Adam and has him name them. And you're like, well, why would he do that? I think he did, I actually think he did it in pairs to drive the point home to Adam, but it was to show Adam his need for someone else who would be different than the animals, someone he would neither rule over like the animals nor worship like God. And having done so and concluding from that parade of animals, as you see in verse 20, that 
no suitable helper was found, God made Eve out of Adam's rib and he brought her to Adam. Look at verses 21 and 22. So the God caused the man to fall, the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he, God, brought her to the man. And then Adam responds in verse 23 with some poetry, noting the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of Eve as having been created from a piece of his own rib. And so we see here first that marriage is by God's design through the creation of both male and female elements of mankind or being human, which reflect his image and which are distinct from all other parts of the created order. And then which we're going to see him unite those two male and female elements in a moment in a marriage relationship. So that brings us to the second point. We see that marriage of one man and one woman is God's design through God speaking the design of marriage into existence and performing the first marriage. And we see this as the story picks up in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, some of you astute readers might say in reading this passage, well, wait a minute, that's not necessarily God speaking here. That's the writer of Genesis. And Jesus told us in the book of Luke that that's Moses. So how do we know and how can you say that this is God speaking the precise design of marriage into existence and in fact performing the first ceremony? Good question. Well, first on one level, we know that Moses was inspired by God in what he wrote. And so what Moses declared in verse 24 is really God's declaration about marriage through Moses' inspired words. And verses 24 25 are really effectively words of institution for marriage. Why do I say that? Because for thousands of years, these are the words that have been used in marriage ceremonies down through time and are still used today. But even more so, we see this explicitly in the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, where he refers back to our text in Genesis 2.24. He, Jesus, answered, have you not read that he, meaning God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And he, God, said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now here in this passage from Matthew, I think Jesus does three important things in helping us understand the Genesis text. First, he makes clear in verses four and five that it's in fact God and not Moses that spoke the specific design for male and female one flesh marriage into existence in Genesis 2. And then second, Jesus affirms God's establishment in Genesis 2 of the one man, one woman model for marriage as the biblical norm and the only model for marriage. And third, so look at the first sentence of verse 6. And that comes right after his quote of Genesis 2.24. And it says, so they, and you read in here, the man and the woman referred to in verse 5 are no longer two, but one flesh. And then third, we have the second half of Jesus' words in verse six, 
affirming that God performed the first marriage with Adam and Eve. Jesus said again in reference to Genesis 2.24, what therefore God has joined together, and read here, in marriage, let not man separate. Brothers and sisters, no matter what our culture may try to convince us of, marriage is not the product of social evolution, nor is it a man-made social construct, nor it is something that can be entered into and ended or altered at our whim or our convenience or to satisfy our desires or to satisfy our preferences. The Genesis account and Jesus' affirmation of it unambiguously establishes that marriage intended as a one flesh covenantal union between one man and one woman for life was designed by God in a specific way to reflect his image, was spoken into existence by God at the time of creation, and was performed by God as the crowning act of creation. God designed it. God spoke that design into existence God performed it and still performs it today. Jesus ratified and affirmed it. Who are we to mess around with that design? Amen? That brings us to our second principle. Not only is a marriage of one man and one woman by God's design, that marriage is by design a lifelong covenantal relationship that God performs every time a man and a woman are married in a Christian ceremony. And we see this again by connecting Genesis 2.24 with the additional affirmations of Jesus in Matthew 6. So first in Genesis 2.24, we see the three key aspects of this being a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. And they're italicized on the screen. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So let's unpack all three of those for just a second. Leaves his father and mother. This signals that the covenant relationship of marriage and that both the man and the woman leave as their primary relationship, their existing family relationship, which is the relationship where they have the strongest family bonds that they have ever known up until this point, their relationship with their parents. And in doing so, they break away to form a new covenant relationship or bond where that primary family relationship becomes their spouse. In the same way as the parent-child has been the primary relationship till now, the husband-wife relationship will become the primary relationship that they know. United to his wife, or more literally, hold fast or stick to his wife. Now, this is, I think, reflected in part In Adam's proclamation about Eve in verse 23, that she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this also has the idea in marrying of of folding the other person into one's heart. At every level of being, mind, heart, soul, and body, each partner becomes wholeheartedly devoted to the other as to no other. And then third, become one flesh, or literally into one flesh. And this carries the idea of one mortal life fully shared. It's the idea of a full uniting of two persons, not just bodies, not just hearts, but all of their beings. It's the idea, and you're going to hear a little bit of this in Pam's and my story in a minute. It's the idea of two selfish me's starting to learn and think as one united us. 
sharing everything, one life, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one family, one mission, on and on and on and on and on. These three phrases, which many of you will recognize as the leave, cleave, and weave components of a marriage relationship, make it very clear that by God's design, the marriage relationship is more than just a contractual arrangement. It's not rooted only or primarily in romance or in sexual desire or in companionship or in procreation or in cultural convenience. Instead, what these words point to is marriage is a sacred covenant, a relationship rooted in covenantal commitments that stand against every storm life throws at them. It's what we say when we get married and say, as long as we both shall live or until death do us part. And like he did with the design of marriage, Jesus in Matthew 19, and particularly verse 6, affirms both the covenantal nature of marriage and that God is the one performing those covenantal marriages. How so? First, in the first sentence of verse 6, Jesus affirms the covenantal nature of marriage by reaffirming the blending or the joining of the two into a one flesh relationship. You can see that in the first sentence of verse 6. But second, he says in the second half of verse 6, what God has joined together, therefore let not man separate. Jesus is also affirming that in the actual act of marriage, even today, it is God and not man that is performing the marriage union and the marriage ceremony. It's not man, it's not the state that is the main actor in establishing and performing that one flesh marriage relationship. It's God. And that brings us to the third principle. The marriage relationship as God designed it, complete in just a husband and wife, and should be the priority relationship in the family. Say that again. The marriage relationship as God designed it is complete in just a husband and wife and should be the priority relationship in the family. I think both of these principles are, again, evident in the structure of our text from Genesis 1 and 2. So let's look back and see how. In days one to five, we see God create light and land and water and plants and animals. And after every single one of those days, first five days of creation, how does it end? And God saw that it was good. And in day six, we see Adam create Adam out of dust and he creates Eve out of Adam's rib And then he establishes the very first marriage ceremony in scripture. And then what does God say in Genesis 1.31? And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. The first and only time in the creation account that God says something was very good. And then what did God do after that? He rested, right? On the seventh day, he rested. Because creation was complete at that point. Only on day six, and only in the context of of creating a man and woman and joining them in a one flesh marriage covenant relationship, does God ever declare creation very good and then rest. But notice right now what is not present. There are no siblings. There are no children. There are no parents. And there are no in-laws. I, I, I have to say here, I love my in-laws, so it's, it's not a poke at anybody. 
There are no other social relationships present. They all come later. And yet God considers creation very good and complete. So what do we conclude from that? I believe it's a fair interpretation that if children were necessary to complete a marriage or a family, God would have created them before pronouncing creation complete and very good. As such, I think we can also fairly conclude that the covenantal marriage relationship completes a family unit. A man alone, a woman alone completes a man and a man alone completes a woman. The husband and wife form the self-sufficient nucleus of a family unit. Children are not necessary to be a family. They do not complete a family. They only expand it. And this, I believe, should be an encouragement for couples who long for children but are struggling for fertility or other reasons to get there. Now, I do not want to, please, I do not want to diminish the very real pain associated with not being able to have children. It's real We do not dismiss it. We cannot ignore it. And I frankly am in no position to understand it fully. There's the constant reminder whenever you see a pregnant woman or other families with children. There may be unspoken pressure or disappointment from family or from friends. There may be the ongoing lack of fulfillment of one of the deepest and longings and desires of your heart. And there may even be anger or frustration at God. Why me? Why not? I hope today that if you're in that situation, you can take some comfort in the fact that by God's design, you are a complete and whole family as husband and wife. Children are not necessary to fulfill and enjoy God's beautiful design for covenant marriage and being a family. Yes, children are a blessing if God provides them. And yes, it is good and right to want them. But they are not necessary to be a whole and a complete family. Now, second, not only is the husband-wife a complete family relationship, but I believe the creation account also emphasizes that our marriage relationships should be the primary and priority relationship in our families. God began human relationships with a husband and wife, the only social relationship established in creation. And it was such a big deal that he made it the crowning act of creation. And if that's true, then it follows that as goes the primacy and the health and the strength of your marriage, where the husband is the, and the wife are the head and the heart of the family, so goes the health and security of our children, and as a result, the effectiveness of our parenting. In other words, in a sense, you will never be a better father or a mother than you are a husband or a wife. I'll say that again. I believe you will never be a better father or mother than you will be a husband or wife. You serve your children best by protecting and nurturing your marriage as a first priority. Why? And I know this as a child of divorced parents because the health and stability of your marriage directly affects in many ways the health and stability of your children as they go through life more than anything including that we love them our children need to know 
and to see, not just here, that mom loves dad and dad loves mom. I'll say that again. More than anything, including that we love them, our children need to know and see, not just here, that dad loves mom and mom loves dad. Call it a marriage security meter. When that reality is clear and evident, meaning the security meter is reading strong, there's an inherent stability in, their, in, the, in, the, in the family and in our children's lives. That marriage and family stability in turn produces a sense of certainty and security in our children, which they need in order to be freed up to develop to their fullest potential. But when that certainty certainty doesn't exist and the meter is reading weak, there's often a constant and low level of anxiety about what truly is the foundation of their world. Mommy and daddy staying together and loving each other. This uncertainty in turn puts a strain on everything they try to do, including their physical, their emotional, their academic, and even their spiritual development. And no level of baseball or dance or piano lessons or toys or even our focused attention with them can address that loss of certainty and security that they really need. All right, those are our three principles. What I want to do here now is, uh, what does this mean for us practically? And I want to make three specific application challenges. First, we must defend, fight for, support, encourage, and live out God's design for marriage in our lives, our churches, and society. Why? Because God's design for marriage is really a gospel issue. As I explained already, this partly comes from Genesis 1 and 2. God created us male and female and designed marriage to be a one-man, one-woman relationship for life to reflect in ways we'll never understand his image. And when we allow God's design for biblical covenant marriage to be compromised, we take a swipe at his image as reflected in that design. But this also comes partly from the Ephesians 5 text that Pastor Chuck will cover next week. I don't want to steal his thunder, but I do want to reflect on just one piece in verses 31 and 32, where Paul, again referencing Genesis 2.24, adds some critical context for understanding the full nature of the human marriage relationship as God designed it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This, is a mis- this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's Paul saying here? Not only that our marriages are a covenant relationship, but marriage, our marriages as a covenant relationship are a little picture of the gospel of Christ and his bride and covenant love together. And a beautiful, tender, thriving covenant marriage makes the gospel visible on earth, bringing hope to people who have given up believing that they could ever find love anywhere. Brothers and sisters, that's why clarity about the definition of marriage matters to Christians. If we depart from or fail to stand up for the biblical view of marriage, one man and one woman in covenantal relationship, which is a picture of the covenant relationship of Christ with the church, we are taking a a step away from and beginning to tarnish the gospel. So how do we work to preserve God's design for marriage? As a church... We do so by taking a firm stand on the biblical design for marriage. 
We have a constitution that contains a statement on marriage, gender, and sexuality that reflects this truth as one of our core beliefs. And everybody who joins as a member agrees and affirms that biblical position. We have a policy that prohibits our pastors from performing marriages that don't meet the biblical definition of marriage, and it prohibits the use of our facilities for either performing or celebrating any kind of supposed marriage. And like today, we faithfully preach and teach the word of God and his beautiful and perfect design for marriage. How about us as couples? And this is where I believe Pastor Chuck will pick up next week. We do so as we model in our marriages the beautiful picture of the gospel reflected in Christ and the church. As we live with each other in selfish and mutual submission, repentance, forgiveness, sacrificial love, and respect. Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt each other. And other people are going to see it. But if we're willing to confess sin and seek and give forgiveness and seek the good of our spouse above our own, then our children and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers will see a small picture of the beauty and the attractiveness of the gospel. A gospel driven by the self-denying suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the sake of his bride, the church. How about parents? Well, we do this as we purposely teach and train our children about God's beautiful and exclusive design from sex and marriage. Combating the pervasive lies and the distortions that are, they are bombarded with daily on social media and in the classroom. Three questions. How much time do our children spend in environments where they get the world's perspective on gender and sexuality? How much time do we spend as parents sowing the contrary truth of God's design for gender, sex, and marriage? And third, what does all that suggest about the scope and the urgency of the task in front of us as parents. Now second, because marriage is a covenant relationship, our second application is staying married is about covenant keeping. It's not about staying in love or being happy or becoming our best self or whatever other self-focused unbiblical reason you or I may be tempted to point to as a reason to stay, to, to leave our marriages. When we got married, most of us made a covenant pledge, often before God, to stay married till life, till death do us part. And with the exception of some narrow areas like infidelity or abuse or abandonment, we're called to keep our marriage covenant. No matter the pain or the difficulty or how painful or long or unyielding or even impossible the road in front of us may look. Now, these are hard words. And they're hard words, particularly for some of us who right now may be in a difficult or painful or unfulfilling marriage. But I want to offer you a word of hope and encouragement this morning. And I can stand here this morning and offer that word of hope because Pam and I have lived through that precise challenge. Where we had to choose between selfishness and covenant obligation. And by God's grace and choosing to keep covenant over the easier path, divorce path, we've come out on the other side. Quickly, I'll tell you the story. We got married as Christians and got married in a church ceremony. And God willing, this August, we'll celebrate 35 years of marriage. But about seven years in, we were both very unhappy. And at least at my end, the root of it was mostly simple selfishness. An excessive focus on what I wanted and felt I needed and even deserved. And, and of course, that Pam was completely unable to satisfy who could. 
And as I tell this story, I want to say something both Pam and I understand for those of you who may be in this situation right now. We understand just how painful and how hopeless trying to push on in that kind of an environment can seem. We've been there. We've felt it. We've lived it. It was so painful for me that I can recall one Sunday afternoon pulling out the classified ads and starting to circle apartments that I could rent because I just didn't feel like I could stay in our marriage relationship anymore. But this is where the covenantal aspect of marriage becomes in because you see, as Christians, there aren't just two parties to our marriages. There's three. There's me and Pam and Christ. And, that, and, and this is where the miraculous aspect of this story comes in. That very same week, after I got, no kidding, after I got the classified ads out, I was at work one afternoon, and Mike, a good friend of mine who was a lawyer, and he was in our family group at church, he showed up at my office. Now, to tell you how unusual this is, we, li- we lived in Indianapolis, and at the time, we lived on the south side of town. His office was in the middle of town, and my office was on the northwest side of town. So for at 4.30 in the afternoon, for Mike to show up in my office, it was exactly the wrong way for him to be going. And so we came over and we sat down in a conference room and Mike looked at me and he said, Jeff, I don't know why, but when I was doing my quiet time this morning, God told me I needed to come see you. What's going on? What's the problem? And I hemmed and I hawed as I would normally do. And finally, I just said, Mike, I can't do this anymore. I'm making plans to get out of my marriage. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, nope. You're not going to do that. You can't do that. You made a covenant relationship with your wife, and you don't have a reason or a basis to do that. And then he called two friends. They were also good friends, and they took me out to dinner. And they listened, and they empathized, and they helped me process through what I was feeling. But all three of them made me stay in my marriage. They said, we will not let you do this. So through Mike and those dear brothers, they saved me from walking away from my covenant promises. Now, at the time, I did not want to stay in it. I didn't see how there was a path forward. I didn't see how it could possibly be repaired. But God, through those three guys, held me in. And so Pam and I went back and we tried again. We did months of couples and individual counseling. We confessed sin, and especially for me, selfishness. And we spent years of slowly trying to rebuild back trust and eventually positive feelings for each other. I won't say it was at all easy. It often felt like the efforts to restore a relationship were like pouring water into a cup that had a hole in the bottom. And no matter what we tried, I would pour stuff in and I would look and it was like, it's empty. It's not having any effect. And that was really discouraging for a while. But God provided in those long months where we were simply trying to rebuild the ability to trust and live together. And eventually, you know what happened? That hole in the bottom of the cup started to fill. And eventually it closed. And eventually the things that we were pouring into our relationship, marriage relationship started to stick. And as he closed, those closed waters led to a healed relationship of softened hearts and renewed trust. And we started to collect and grow in that closed cup. And God's been growing us together ever since for over 25 years. Honestly, it's been slow. Because I am a stubborn person. And there have been setbacks. And it's still hard work for us today. 
And God is, but God has been proved faith, has proved faithful and has woven something that's even, I think, starting to look a little beautiful out of the ash heap that we first made of our marriage. So why do I tell that story? To help remind us all that no matter how helpless or difficult it may seem at the time, our marriage is not a contract we can reluctantly decide to walk away from. It's a covenant relationship performed by God with Jesus at the center and modeled after the picture of Christ in the church. As in Pam's is my story as a Christian, Jesus is present in your marriage as much as you want to let him be. If we put him at the center, he can heal and restore a broken or a hurting marriage relationship no matter how hopeless or impossible it may look or how painful it may be. We just need to be willing to surrender to him and give him a chance to work in our hearts and marriages. I've got one more quick application, and that is, for the reasons explained earlier, let's take specific and deliberate steps to make our marriages the primary relationships in our families. One way to do that is to spend time and resources growing and cultivating your marriage relationship. That means things like seminars and studies and other things. And guess what? There's just such an event next Saturday night. And I would encourage you all, if you haven't signed up, to spend the time to come for a night and work on your marriage. There's still tickets available out back. There's still $10 to the extent that we have paper tickets available and you can get them after the service. A second way is taking advantage of our marriage mentor program here at Midland Free. We have a variety of couples, and Pam and I are one of them, ready and trained to serve as marriage mentors. Now, Pam and I learned a lot of lessons the hard way, sorry. But you don't have to. And one way to hedge against that is to get in a marriage mentoring relationship. And those opportunities run the full spectrum. Premarital counseling, marriages that are having trouble or difficulty and need some help, or marriages that are doing well, but the spouses just want to take them to another level. There's so much to be learned by connecting with a godly couple a few years ahead of us in life experience if we only have the courage to take the time and make the next steps. So if you're interested, you can go to the, there's a marriage mentoring page on the website. You can see Pastor Gibb. You can see Matt and Julie Vaughn who are part of our marriage ministry, or you can even see me after the service. And a final way is to be sure you're doing things in the ebb and flow of everyday life that demonstrate both to your spouse and to your children that your marriage is the most important relationship in your family. How do we do that? I think the key is doing things in front of our children that they can tangibly see that show them the priority of our marriage relationship. On a general matter or general level, that's just things like talking, hugging, laughing, holding hands, praying together, supporting each other, and seeking and receiving forgiveness. It's things like take, making time for a regular date night. And if you're not doing it once a month, you should be. And more importantly, making sure your children understand when you go out what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because they need to understand the reason that you're doing it because it helps them with that marriage security meter deep inside. And it's things like regularly praying together with your spouse, particularly if you can do it in front of your children. And men, I'm the chief of sinners in this area. Absolutely. But let's take the initiative on this starting today. Women, what more, what one more thing would you want from your husband than for him to take the initiative of praying with you? Amen? And what more 
good could you do for your children and to see you taking that initiative and seeing you as a couple doing that? So in conclusion, God purposely designed marriage as a lifetime, one flesh covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. It's complete in the husband-wife relationship and should be the priority relationship in the family. He wants us to and will help us to stick to our covenant relationship to our spouse, even when it seems hard or impossible to do so. And he wants us to make that covenant relationship the priority relationship in our families for the health of our marriages, for the security and blessing of our children, and for the glory of God and the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your perfect, beautiful design of marriage. Thank you for the hundreds of marriages present here this morning, men and women joined by you in a wonderful one flesh gospel displaying union. Father, convict us of sin and forgive us where we failed to make marriage the priority relationship in our family and our spouse the priority relationship in our lives. Help us to keep Jesus at the center of our marriages. Help us to do the hard work of putting our marriages first and staying in them even when it seems hard, even hopeless. And as we do so, Father, would we reflect the beauty of the gospel to our children, to our families, and to our community. Amen.